This podcast is dedicated to all the guys I've met, lost and loved. I don't know whether they are still with us, as there were those with HIV and those who did chemsex. And to all those guys we've lost to HIV and to chemsex. You were all taken away from us before your time to shine. Let us not forget you all. Let's also not forget those who have now survived the AIDS epidemic too. Those who thought they were given a death sentence, but now, with the right treatment, are now undetectable. They now cannot pass the virus on to others. This podcast contains a frank commentary of a gay man navigating his way through the gay scene in the 1990s onwards. Although there is no explicit material on here, it does contain mild references of gay sex and drug taking. Although I take full responsibility of my actions, I do feel that the politics and the taboos of the 90s didn't help matters and were a contributing factor to my sexual and drug addiction. If you continue listening, you accept the fact that you may find some of the subjects uncomfortable. Names and places have been anonymised to protect the identity of individuals and of places. I have just finished watching It's a Sin on Channel 4 On Demand. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but the year it finishes on is 1991. I was 15 at the time. During the time when this mini-series was set, I heard about HIV and AIDS at middle school. So when I was trying to figure out my sexuality, it came with the real threat that just by being gay came with a death sentence. I have spent the last few days recounting everything and everyone I have met and all those places I have been and all of those things that I've done. I am nearly 45 and I do feel that my generation has been greatly affected by the AIDS epidemic and that alone brought it home to me by watching It's a Sin. This originally was going to be a personal account of what it was like to grow up in the gay scene from 1991 through to present day. That changed when I realised I was still not admitting to something a bit bigger. So to begin, in 1991 I knew I was gay, but thanks to section 28 my gay sex education was as follows. The age of consent for gay men is 21. They can only have sex in a private home, not in a hotel, and no more than two people. This was as much as we got, as Section 28 prohibited promoting homosexuality in schools. So I knew there must be others like me, but how the hell do they meet? Remember, 1991, there was no commercial World Wide Web, no smartphones, and it didn't even occur to me that there was a thing as a gay bar. I had homophobic bullying at school. I have been punched and kicked for being gay. It was a hard time in the 90s for being a young gay lad. There was more homophobia than there is now. There were no role models whatsoever, and there was no support outlet either. This 
coupled with the fact that there was a virus that killed mostly gay men, made it a toxic time to grow up in. I don't want to be political about this, but growing up gay was a lot more difficult then. You could get sacked for being a homosexual, no marriage rights whatsoever, and getting a mortgage was difficult for gay couples. And all of this under the cloud of AIDS. So let me take you back to 1991, when Kylie Minogue changed her image with Better the Devil You Know, and the European Commission was discussing the Maastricht Treaty, and when John Major was Prime Minister. And we shall start with a 15-year-old lad struggling with his sexuality. 1991. I was 15 and already had two years experience in gay sex. I will hasten to add, it was two 13-year-olds experimenting. Did I know what I was doing? Yes. Was it consensual? Yes. Did I enjoy it? Oh, hell yes. Partly it was because I was having sex. Mostly because it was secret. It was naughty. And it was fun. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was fun. I will add though, I thought it was a phase I was going through. And I would always try to fantasise about females. But it always gravitated towards males. It was a losing situation. I tried thinking about straight thoughts. It just never happened. I do remember going through this as a boy one night. And the thought process was this. I like men. Am I the only one? No, that's impossible. I can't be. Okay. So how do I meet others like me? That was about a minute's worth taken up there. I knew nothing of gay bars, as it was a taboo subject. And I had no peers, except for the other 13-year-old, which we kept a secret, and I still do now. I was involved with an HIV-AIDS production at our town's youth centre, as we, as a group, thought it was an important subject to push. We learned everything about how you caught AIDS. We learned that it was through mainly blood and sexual fluids and that it was more likely to affect promiscuous people, no matter their sexuality. I had leaflets galore. This was brilliant, as for part of our GCSE English, we needed to talk on a subject. I was going to do magic. But as this production really took over, I went with the AIDS subject. I just went hell for leather with this. I was with a group of girls, so I was the only lad in the group. Not only did the group learn something, I vaguely remember our English tutor being very impressed with the research. To be brutally honest, I already had the stuff on me. It wasn't exactly that difficult to regurgitate the facts. Now, it was also at this time I found what I thought was the gay scene. I found I could pick up men in the gents' loose. Again, please remember, this was when the age of consent was 21, being gay was taboo at best, and I had zero knowledge of anything else. I am going to keep this as clean as possible. 
I don't want this to be poor material for anyone. I just want to be frank and to be as clean as possible. There was a code in the loose. Feet pointing towards the cubicle next to you meant that the person next was interested. If you came with a pen, you could instant message each other using a pen and toilet paper, or if you're really prepared, a notepad. For those that now use apps, the messaging basically followed the same to and fro. Age, likes, do you have a place? Do you have a place we can go? Yes, the tech has changed. The gay man has not. Again, it was fun. It was exciting and, of course, very illegal. I have nearly been caught more than one occasion by the police. But because of my age, all I got was, there are some really bad men who would like to take advantage of you in here. You don't want that now, do you? And all I was thinking was, oh, yes, please. This is what I used to do on a Saturday. As I was a regular user, I met up with quite a few of the same guys on a regular basis. If these guys lived alone, then it was possible to meet up in a private house. I did exchange phone numbers, but please remember, mobile phones weren't as common. Although, 10p's and phone cards on me were very common. I had some good times, some not so good times, and times where... Consent was abused. I'm not saying rape or sexual abuse because there was a point in the act that consent was made and it was simply abused. I was told that if I didn't take it then I wouldn't become a good gay by one encounter. Stupid thing was I kept going back as that guy had a flat to go back to rather than go elsewhere and in a public loo. For me, this is what I thought the gay scene was. It made sense. It was illegal. It was frowned upon by society. You were told that if you were gay, you were a dirty old man, and you could catch AIDS. And what better place to meet up with other dirty old men, and that was in a gent's public toilet. But... I was HIV and AIDS awareness trained. I was a stickler for safe sex. 1992. Under present legislation, I'm now at legal age. But this is 1992. I was still five years too young. So a year older and still trolling around the public toilets. This was whether it was in my hometown or in others. I was in the sixth form. The Youth Centre got funding from Public Health to do another AIDS awareness production and I got myself my first job. My mum got me a job with her. I got shown around by the manager, who I was told was gay. So great, I now know a gay person outside a public toilet. This was new. During this time, a friend's dad told me about the local gay bar. What? A pub full of gay men? You you mean they meet in a proper building? Whoa. So a week after I got paid, I went to the pub. Yes, I was 16. Yes, I was underage drinking. But what the heck? Let's give it a go. 
I went to my local gay bar and I actually got served. This 16-year-old looked 18. Woohoo! I was sitting on my own and this guy called me over. Which, to this day, we are still friends. But more on that later. I needed the loo, so I got up and turned around, only to see my gay manager and another work colleague sitting behind us. My whole life, all 16 years, flashed before my eyes. I'm going to get caught out. I'm underage drinking, these guys know exactly my age, and I'm obviously there to pick up other guys. So underage sex too. Oh my God, my whole world is going to crash. The following week, my manager took me by his side and basically said, look, you tell your mum in your own time. I will make sure that you are the first to tell her and not by work gossip. He was true to his word. Gossip about me and my sexuality was away from my mum. She never got wind of it until I told her. My reasoning was very simple. I will tell her my sexuality once I have reached the age of consent. I did get members of staff asking me when I was going to tell her, but until I came out, my mum never knew. Big, big thanks to the staff for making it my choice and not make it work gossip. Going back to that first night, my underage drinking stopped because I went back with one of the barmen and his boyfriend. My first threesome, yay! He asked me about his age, so I told him the truth. I was in fact 17. Sixth form and part-time work enabled that lie. The landlord wasn't happy that I was underage drinking, but felt it safer for me to drink coke in his bar as it was a safer environment than public toilets. Of course, I was young, I was 16, and I got a name for myself for being the slut of the bar. But what the hell, I was enjoying it. During this year, the gay scene got its act together and started giving out free condoms and lube in its venues to combat the AIDS epidemic. Of course, I took some. I was HIV AIDS awareness trained. I was a stickler for safe sex. Earlier, I touched on the second HIV and AIDS production. The cast figured out my sexuality. I spoke to the director about this. He came out to me too. It was the first time I had a proper conversation about the gay scene and being gay outside of a gay bar and outside of a public toilet. When we finished the production, we were taken to the West End to see five guys named Mo, but before then, we were taken back to his flat, which he shared with his boyfriend. I knew that, but had to keep it quiet because he ran a youth theatre group and couldn't come out, as it would have had serious repercussions. This was also the time I came out to the youth centre fully, thinking, naively, that if I came out, others might too. I was wrong. I got punched and kicked again, mostly because I answered honestly when one guy asked if I fancied him. Not made that mistake again. The youth leaders were more sympathetic. They gave me the phone number for the gay switchboard, more than I got from school. It was more or less at this point I stopped going to the youth centre because I didn't fit in. Now back at school. The school was performing Annie. It got out that I was frequenting the local gay bar. I was the sound engineer 
for that production. The cast kept bullying me and I got to the point of carry on or I'll walk out. I walked out, albeit for half an hour. At the end of the show party, the youth leader of the school kept saying to me, By the way, you're not. And I went, I'm not what? She couldn't bring herself to say the word gay. So I basically said, you know nothing of my life, so don't judge me. A few weeks later, still getting homophobic abuse from some pupils, I went to my head of year thinking she might help. Nope. All I got was, if you continue this lifestyle at this school, you will be expelled. But I said, but I take precautions, what's the issue? She replied, if you tell me more, you will be expelled. If you carry on with this lifestyle, you will be dead. I said, fine, I'm leaving this school. So I did. Just by me being there meant the school was breaking section 28. My being there simply promoted homosexuality. So I went into full-time employment at a holiday camp in Bognor. Bognor is not that far from Brighton. I knew from my trips to the local gay bar that Brighton had a big gay scene. Let me tell you now, I must be the only gay man not to find one gay bar in Brighton. Yes, I had the gay times on me, but damn, that thing was out of date. I stayed there for two weeks and left. I got back to my hometown and went into temping work. I stayed in temping until 1993, but that's another year. This was also the year I came out to my friend from school. It took me an hour for him to take in the fact that I was telling the truth. It was at that point I found out I was a straight acting homosexual. Fantastic. I can blend into society, people not knowing my sexuality, and I can keep it hidden. Even though I wasn't working with my mum, the staff were still keeping it a secret. At least in 1993, I'm going to celebrate my 18th birthday, albeit at the age of 17. 1993. So 17, not quite 18, I did celebrate my 18th birthday. I could not wait another year of not drinking in my gay local. I did come clean though when I celebrated my 19th. One of the guys I met in one of the public loos, we got to know each other outside of them and we frequented London bars. This was where I first came across drag queens and cabaret artists. Cabaret artists such as Regina Fong, Katrina and the Boy, although if Katrina and the Boy are still on the circuit, the Boy is probably now the old git, something Katrina herself said once on stage. Regina Fong had such a repertoire that the audience simply asked her what to do. There was a plate-waving song singing about a mouse. Where? Under the stair. There was a reason why it was picked in It's a Sin. She was a brilliant artist who we lost at the age of 56 from cancer in 2003. Little did I realise, watching these artists on stage, that I would become one four years later.
I remember going back with London lads many a time and my friend going home a lot on his own. I do also remember the discussions around this too. I would like to say that this was a one-off, but it is something I have always found myself doing. If a guy looks at me a certain way or smiles at me a certain way, that's me gone. That's me drinking up, going back to his flat and do what gay men do best. This is possibly why, when I go to London on my own, I do it alone. So that I don't leave a group because a cute guy in the corner has been eyeing me up and I cannot say no. Something else that gets me into trouble. More on that later. Even at this age, I have no clue how many guys I have met. Who I went back with, but I was taking precautions. I was HIV awareness trained. I was a stickler for safe sex. I loved the attention I was getting. Even though I don't class myself as good looking, even though I've been told many times that I am. I think it's because that due to the fact I was bullied at school, I was getting more positive attention from guys. I wasn't getting punched and kicked, I was getting hugs, intimacy and a lot more. I was still frequenting the public loos as it was an addiction, the chance of getting caught either by a member of the public or the police. My sex drive was high then, it still is now, it hasn't turned down one bit. That alone I think is why it has got me into trouble one too many times. This and coupled with an addictive personality, this is a dangerous combination. But more on that later. As I was staying out constantly overnight, I had a workable excuse. I would ring up my parents and say I was staying over at a friend's house, which I never did. It only worked because my parents never had their phone number. They trusted me I was telling the truth. Sorry, Mum. 1993 was my first Pride. I went back with a few guys from the Friday before from the pub and we went up. This was the days when it was free. All the bar tents were all the gay bars of London. But I was 17 and I only had a fiver for my drinks. Coca-Cola was my lot. I lost the guys I went up with and to this day I have no clue how I got home. This was the first time... I found out it was okay to be gay. But it also had a very dark undertone with it. Gay guys were getting together in one place with the backdrop of a gay serial killer around London. So, not only could you get AIDS, there was also a high chance of being killed or murdered for just being a homosexual. This was not the age to grow up gay in. This is my message to the younger crowd of the LGBT plus community. This was the stark reality of the gay scene in the 90s. You had no access to gay sex education. There was an epidemic going around killing young gay men. And not only that, you were being punched and kicked. On top of that, you also had a serial killer on the loose. This was the first time I met transsexuals, mostly guys who had gender dysphoria wanting to be female. As at that time, there was nowhere for them to go. So before the gender reassignment surgery, they would meet up on the gay scene, as it was the least unwelcoming of the communities. 
In those days, the gay bars would have the gays, the lesbians, the bisexuals and the trans. And not one group mixed with the other. One particular late night pub had a bunch of transvestites and transsexuals in one corner of the bar. They didn't mix to talk to anyone outside their group. As Douglas Murray adequately put it, gay men and gay women have almost nothing in common. Gay men often characterise lesbians as dowdy and boring. Lesbians often characterise gay men as silly and displaying a failure to grow up. Meanwhile, bisexuals continue to be viewed as gays in some form of denial and there is tremendous dispute on whether the T's are the same thing as everyone else or an insult to them. Madness of crowds. Remember, when I came out, it was the GLB community. The G and the L got switched. The trans only came along as they needed a movement for themselves and some of the rights we were fighting they wanted too. I'm going to be really upfront here. I have no issues with trans people at all. My brother is trans. I have friends that are trans. But when it comes to our rights, they are completely different. Let me also make a point that once a trans person had all their surgery in the 90s, they came off the gay scene and mixed back into normal society, thus shunning themselves away from the gay scene. This happened a lot. This was also when I realised how bad the HIV and AIDS epidemic was with gay men. Many a time I would ask in a bar, where is so-and-so? The answer always came back, pneumonia or cancer. Code words for AIDS. Yes, we didn't like using that word ourselves and I think it caused more harm than good. 1994 In 1994, I finally turned 18. For real. Not the faux birthdays I had earlier. My friend, who I met in the pub in 1992, now knew it was okay for me to go to the London pubs, which we did. These generally were in Soho and just outside of the West End so I knew there was a bigger gay scene on my doorstep. I did try further education again, but because I preferred to troll around the public loos around the town surrounding me, I missed lessons. I would ring and meet up people who I had phone numbers. Remember, I was using telephone boxes. I frequently met up with them. This is where I found gay porn. If you watched It's a Sin, you know I'm not talking about Pornhub. Yes, I was able to see men in their birthday suits standing to attention, or if you were able to get the foreign magazines, full-on sex. Woohoo! Some of those men I visited had VHS porn videos that had been copied so often you could just about see what they were doing. None of this HD stuff we have today. Oh, speaking of magazines, we had the boys' magazine. Not the small, glossy thing we have today, oh no... This was a broadsheet. I used to take them home, as the best porn material was in there. There were male escorts and adult phone numbers. We had to make do in the 90s. I used to hide them under the bed. Try hiding ten copies of the Times under your bed, and you'll see how hard this was. But more on that later. 
The pink paper was also like this too, but I vaguely remember that boys was gay men centric and the pink paper was lesbian centric. Oh yes, I had more men, some married with kids, some gay, some bisexual. And I think this is where things started to get a bit murky in the safe sex department. Remember, I was a stickler for safe sex. I think, but can't be too sure, where I started to let my guard down. I can't remember a day when I stopped using precautions. But looking back, as I was having more sex, the likelihood is that I was being less careful, as we shall see in 1995. 1995. In 1995, I landed a job at our leisure centre. One of the managers there I knew from my public's loo days, so a slightly uncomfortable conversation was had there. This was also the time my youngest brother was at secondary school and was getting bad treatment because his eldest brother was gay. I didn't know this at the time, so I asked my mum what the deal was with my brother. I would like to say this was at home with a cup of tea, or in a pub. No. My coming out story to my mum was on the bus to work. My mum said that my brother heard some stuff at school, and I asked what it was. Finally came out, only to be told my parents had this conversation 18 months previous. I asked work to send me home as I told them what happened. As there was a bar at the leisure centre, they allowed me a Budweiser before setting me off home. Yeah. Home. As I was on a zero-hour contract, it meant we got sent home some days. So if money allowed me, I went to London, and one of the barmen told me about gay saunas. Without going into too much detail here, a gay sauna is not for health reasons. Your average gay sauna has a steam room, a sauna, and a few relaxation areas. And if they were real upper class... They'd have videos on. Let me make your mind wonder for a second. They are used exactly the way you are thinking about them. Yes, home went via one of these venues as I didn't want to have the coming out discussion with my dad just yet. I frequented these a lot. There are about two or three I used to go to. I remember being in one, listening to two older gents talking about us young twinks and being told basically you can't be too picky in a sauna. There were, of course, the usual type. The young gay man who thought he was drop-dead gorgeous and no matter how young and good-looking you were, no one was going to have him. Then you had guys around my age, 18 to 25. We, of course, have just found these places out and, oh, hell yeah, we were going to have fun. Then we get to the oldies. Basically, anyone over the age of 26. The older guys used to fall into two camps. The first would be that you would want to touch them first. Whereas the others would prefer to touch you first. And second. And third. And wait on a bloody minute, I'm not a piece of meat. This always has been a problem on the gay scene. There's a certain type of man that just won't take no for an answer. In those days, I thought it was the older gent. Nowadays, I've seen guys younger than me do the same. 
it's now no longer ageist. This was also the year I went to Pride. I so wish I was a fly on the wall at my parents. The news was on and my dad said to my mum, Is that where my son is? My mum said, Yes. My brother, who was in the room at the time, looked at my mum, then at my dad, then at my mum again. And my mum said, Yes, your brother's gay. And apparently that was the end of the conversation. This was around the time I had my first HIV and AIDS scare. Someone I went with just calmly mentioned to somebody else that they had HIV and it was unprotected. I didn't want to have the test in my hometown, so I went to London for it. I don't know where I could go, but thankfully, down to the HIV AIDS theatre productions, we were taken to the London Lighthouse, a hostel for those with advanced AIDS to live less shamelessly in their last few weeks or days. The guy, who I remember was very cute, gave me leaflets and details to where I could get tested. I got tested, and yes, like it's a sin, I had to wait for six weeks. Trust me, that was six weeks of hell. I did get my test results back, and they came back negative. And I celebrated the way I knew best, and that was in a sauna. As my hours were being mucked about at the leisure centre, I left and decided to give holiday camps a go again, this time in Somerset. I was there for six weeks until my friend talked me out of staying there and I came back home. But during that time there, I had a fling with the entertainment manager. We thought we were being coy on the first meet, sneaking to his chalet and then me sneaking back to mine ready for work. Imagine my horror at breakfast finding out you are the latest gossip of the holiday camp when people asked you. Had a good time. Definitely inferring you were up to no good. So I went back and I stayed with my friend, the friend I first met in 1992, at his house for a few weeks. But I couldn't cope with the noise from the downstairs flat. I couldn't sleep at all. We went to see Sunset Boulevard and so we didn't pay for the tickets to be sent to us. I went up to get them. To make it worth my while... I trolled around London and missed the last train back. So I went to a gay nightclub and met a guy and went home with him. This, I hate to say, was the start of me going missing in London. I suppose, looking back, it was because I was chasing something that was unobtainable. Don't ask me what it was, I'm still trying to work that out for myself today. I did have a fling up there. It came to an end when I went with his lodger. And that came to an end when I picked up another guy in Vauxhall. Although he had the last laugh, as this guy's house was five doors away from his mum. This was the start of my trips to London. I found saunas, clubs, gay adult clubs and enjoyed myself. You may guess at this point, me being monogamous wasn't going to happen. This was also the time I found the Rocky Horror Picture Show at the Prince Charles Cinema. I knew all the lines to throw back at the screen and got myself a small cult following in the process. A few people came up to me at various times and said, We always come back, as you always seem to keep it topical. I knew that film word for word. Even today, I can sit and watch it and come out with lines that even topical today. This was midnight viewing, so it meant that I was in London all night. This meant that most Fridays after the cinema, I would go and get my underway at a number of clubs. There were also times I used to go back with guys too. Again, looking back, I seemed to be chasing something that was unobtainable. From this point on, 
safer sex was down to the other guy. My HIV AIDS training started to dwindle away from me. So five years in. At this point, I will say I have had counselling for various issues. But the sexual side of my addictions were never taken up through any of my consultations. It is only now, through doing this, that I have found that things were escalating, even at this early point in time. In just five years, I went from cruising around public loos to gay adult clubs. Remember, I was only 21. I suppose from the age of 15... The damage had already been done. Being told by the media that your lifestyle was a death sentence. Being told by a person in authority that if you carry on with your lifestyle you'll be dead. And the fact that your first gay pride had a serial killer on the loose is going to leave a lasting and damaging effect on a young man's gay life. This with the shadow of the real fear of AIDS which did happen to me in 1995, in the guise of finding out I may have caught HIV, showed how dangerous the lifestyle was to me. And I suppose a part of me just got in love with that danger. Let's also remember that the saunas and the gay adult clubs were illegal too. The no more than two in a room part of the law was still in force. These places got raided from time to time. One club had a red light that flashed when the police called. The door staff would keep on talking to them until the club members just looked like club members having a drink. This happened a lot. If I was 15 now, hell, if I was 13 now, sex education for gay men would just be a tiny bit more than regurgitating the law. I don't know if my first counted could be counted as two boyfriends. We hid it in secrecy because of the taboo and the age of consent. Even more reason. I suppose nowadays it would be less frowned upon and maybe, just maybe, we would come out at school as boyfriends. I just don't know. I know of children now being okay to tell their parents at the age of 13 that they are gay. This I never had. The law and the education of the 90s made that very difficult and very scary to come out. Again, not to mention the dark cloud of HIV. As I thought public toilets were the only way to meet, and as the free gay press makes it easier to find adult bars than for their straight counterparts, for someone with a high sex drive and an addictive personality, this was the start of a very dangerous situation. I am now at the point of getting undeniably close to even more people I am in touch with today. Please, please be assured. I will still be keeping names and places anonymous, as I'm only sticking to the sexual and drug addiction side of my life. Everything else is simply unimportant here. 1996. This was the year I found a gay household in the town I was in. I got to know the landlord and was introduced to gay parties. I think by now, if you've got this far into the podcast, these weren't just about drinks. So even now, if at 22, if I put notches on my bedpost on the number of encounters, I think my bed would just be of sawdust. I was still going to watch Rocky Horror, and I did land myself a small but limited full-time job at one of our local hospitals. 
My weekends were very simple then. Friday night, go to London, watch Rocky for the nth time, go to a club and then to a sauna. It was at this point I found my now familiar haunt. At this time it had a disco with a couple of alcoves for people to get intimate in. I was also frequenting other places, thanks to the gay press for showing me new clubs that have opened. As this was the time that gay adult clubs were illegal, it made more sense to be a promoter than a venue manager. As venues always closed, promoters just moved their night to a different venue. These promoters always had what could be described as themed nights, for want of a more sanitised version of what they are. They had dress codes, military, leather, rubber. Some had less restrictive dress codes, with the emphasis on the word less. I went with military, for the simple and easiest reason, is we had an army surplus store in town. It was also the cheapest. For me, it only served one purpose. Get through the door and have fun. Sometimes I was doing Rocky, I would dress up as Riff Raff. So that meant three changes of clothing. One for Rocky, one for the club and one for the trip home. Go organised me. I was also doing disappearing trips at this time. I would be found unavailable for a weekend. I would either stay around a person's house at the time over the weekend, or I pulled an all-weekender in London. Some saunas were open all night over the weekend. This made it very easy. This was also the time I think chemsex started for me. I do remember taking G around this time and having serious issues with it, either being sick or passing out. You would have thought... In 1996, this would have stopped me, wouldn't you? But like I said, the damage was already done by now. So if I take a pause for thought here, I was still trolling around the public loos. I am now actively going to saunas and gay adult bars and having short-term relationships. I was being careful, though. I was getting checked up for HIV during this time. How? I do not know. I was lucky. I am still negative. 1997. This was the year of a new job. It was also the year I had a short-term relationship with a guy that lived near my haunt. It was also the year of discovering cruising grounds and another party. It was also the year that it was when I had a toxilectomy and a circumcision. Although not at the same time. Two days before the tonsillectomy was a gay party to raise funds for HIV and AIDS and was science fiction themed. There were places around where you could get more friendly with the other party goers. As I was frequenting different gay bars, gay adult clubs and gay parties, I knew a lot of people there. This was also the place where I met a dear friend of mine. So let's begin with the tonsillectomy. I obviously had it done. I went home and the guy I was seeing said I could stay for a couple of days at his to rest. Yeah, rest. 48 hours after the operation, I'm in a gay adult club and doing things one should not be doing straight after a tonsillectomy. I think it's to be fair to say in 1987, all that HIV and AIDS stuff I learned has been thrown out the window. Looking back, 
What the hell was I doing? The place I worked was good. They allowed me time off to go to London to spend time up with said guy. Things changed there, so I moved to another branch. It was at this branch I was due for my circumcision. There was a local gay bar near it, too. So sometimes I used to go there before or after work. It made sense. Anyway, back to the circumcision. I had it done, and once I was ready to be discharged, the first thing I asked was, So when will I be able to have sex again? I forgot how many weeks I should. All I can tell you is that I went with a couple of HIV-positive guys with a healing organ. Again, what the hell was I thinking? It always boils down to this. My sex drive is naturally high, cute guys take an interest in me, and I oblige. Absolutely bizarrely, with these two activities, I still had a negative result. Remember, in these days, no PrEP, no anti-HIV tablets that made you undetectable, and I'm knowingly going with HIV-positive guys. I will give myself some credit, though. I didn't and still don't care what a person's status is. Before these two occasions, I was basically of the assumption that if the other person was HIV positive, we take precautions. Now that didn't really matter from this point onwards apparently, and if you think those two dangerous occasions weren't enough, there was more to come. This was also the time I was almost at the end of a short-term relationship, and starting a new long-term relationship. Yes, they both overlapped. I did say monogamy wasn't my thing. So from the age of 15 through to 21, I have no idea how many encounters I've had. I have been with multiple HIV positive guys, with and without protection. In those days, it was dangerous. And things are going to get a whole lot worse before they get better. I'd be a fool if I said I didn't enjoy myself at the time I was doing it. But let's be fair, there was guilt every time I stayed out too long and I didn't have to share that guilt with my family and friends if I stayed out longer. Originally, this podcast was going to be a perspective of the gay scene in the 90s. But it became apparent that there was something else at play that I've never discussed with anyone. The reason why I've never discussed these issues is the fact that I never thought I had a problem. And just by saying you have a sex addiction is still taboo and shameful. Also on the gay scene, you tend to have conversations such as So when did you last have sex? Oh, two months ago. Oh, that long? You must be gagging. So if by chance... You came out saying you have a sexual addiction. You'd either be laughed at or have a queue of men wanting your body. Because I was accustomed to hiding my gay life away, I just kept hiding it. Thinking back, it's partly shame and partly guilt. Although, and I keep emphasising at this point, I was still enjoying it. But I still had the sense of guilt and shame with some encounters. Symptoms of addiction. Which simply went unnoticed. Possibly, like in 1991, it wasn't talked about. And being a gay man, saying you have a problem with sex, is like having a problem drinking water. 1998 
When I was with the short-term partner, I moved to another branch of work to London and lived there for a few weeks. During those few weeks, my dear friend of mine kept coming up to see me. I was clubbing nearly every night. I was only ten minutes away from my haunt and there was a trolling area nearby. Needless to say, everything was on my doorstep. The short-term partner went away for a week. I had no money even to get to work and this is when my depression started to sink in. I rang my dear friend and said, If you don't get me now, I will be in the river. I was that low. I was low because I saw that my actions of moving up to London and the lifestyle I was chasing was not a good thing. I know that now, so I came back to my hometown. I came back with depression, sleep issues and scabies. I did get checked out for HIV whilst back and of course was still negative. This was the year I started a drag act with a friend of mine. This was also the year I moved into the House of Gays that I mentioned earlier. The House of Gays gave me access to more parties on and off site. Sometimes when I finished work, there were some in full flow. I was also in a relationship at this point. Again, monogamy wasn't really on the agenda. But then, this particular relationship wasn't built that way anyway. This was the year of me finding the internet. I must say I have fallen in love with the World Wide Web because if you are technically inclined, you can build your own website. I do admit, though, to coin a Spider-Man phrase, with great power comes great responsibility, I missed that memo when it came to the internet. Our internet service provider was AOL. That thing came with chat rooms. Oh boy. There was one called Utopia Gay and Lesbian. I spent hours on that thing. Just like the public loo days, you had the same to and fro. Age, likes, do you have a place? But this was the internet. You also had the opportunity to send a photo. These were usually scanned and about the size of a postage stamp. So you knew exactly what you were getting if you got him home. Aye, but remember, this is the internet. Even in the AOL days, you never quite got what you asked for. So there were a few mishaps I had. One was that one guy was simply gagging for it. Another one just kept stringers along with no chance of meeting. And a third, well, let's say the photo and description didn't exactly meet up to standards. But as he travelled by taxi, felt sorry for them, but try to get them out of the house as soon as possible. At this time, I had another job. This one lasted for two years. Things were more or less stable. I was again still trolling the public loos. I was still going out to London. There were parties at home too. G happened every now and again, but I never chased that. Yet. Something else I found on the internet too, and that was porn. I'm not talking of Xtube or Pornhub, etc. I'm talking about static images. Thumbnails you clicked on and got a large photo. You could right-click and save. Needless to say, I was right-clicking a lot. I spent hours online looking for the next cute photo. I missed waking up to go to work, and this became more and more of an issue. 
1999. This was the year I was juggling a drag act, a full-time job, a part-time job and my sex life, along with a relationship too. Mostly, it was stable, which made a change. But getting up was always a problem. I think this is where my sleep issues started to show. I was working shifts, I was staying out late, and I was also looking on porn sites as well. Coupled to the fact that the act meant that we were out a lot until 4am or longer in the morning. If I was doing one of these things, or even a couple, I think my sleep wouldn't be in a bad state as it is now. I think the worst ones that have made my sleep the way it is, is the late London trips, and surfing the web for adult sites. Work was good with both the act and me going out. This was the year of the gay nail bomber. So when I got into work, people asked me if I was okay, as they knew I went to London a fair bit. Again, the gay scene had yet another thing you could die from. I will admit, I was taking regular HIV tests at this time, all came negative. But safer sex was always down to the other guy this time round. Whether G, poppers or weed was around. This seemed to be the year I got everything together for once. It seemed that we were close to the millennium. It looked like the 21st century was looking mosey. I mean, we were booked for December the 31st, 1999. This was definitely the millennium of new beginnings. Oh, how wrong I was. Things from 2000 onwards, the next 16 years, were going to take me to places and events that have made an everlasting impact on my life. It's the year 2000. First of all, let me tell you of my millennium celebrations. After the gig, we were going home. Most people had large parties. Some saw the river of fire in London. Some went to clubs. Where were me and my other drag colleague? In a lay-by, on the A21, still in dragon makeup, with a bottle of Budweiser and a couple of party poppers we nicked from the gig. Yap. That is my sum total of the celebrations. My two-year stable job came to an end because of differences. Mainly because I was getting anger issues. I was angry and tired. Possibly because of the late nights with the act, the shift work, not to mention the late nights in London, and surfing for more photos to my ever-increasing collection of scantily dressed men on my hard drive. I jumped from one job to another. I landed another job. The hours were somewhat better. One shift... I had a few hours to kill between the shift and the show. So I did what I always did. I went to the public loo to kill some time before going home. I was standing at the urinal. Saw this cute guy. Next thing, I found my head was bashed to the wall. I was punched and kicked. And was told to give over money or he'd walk behind me telling everyone what I was doing. I had no money. So he was going to continue with his threat. So I said, bravely I thought, that it was no point and I was already out. I didn't care if he did or not. I ran to the bus stop, got home and started to pack up everything for the gig. I was an autopilot. 
the show must go on. Everything was set up. We got there. We did the show. All I remember of the gig is going through the motions, but felt that the people were not just watching me, but also judging me. I remember the lights being too bright and the music too loud, possibly because I was on high alert. This might be the reason why I have difficulty today with loud noises, bright lights and crowds. I don't know. It's just by saying this today, it may shed some light on how and why I have difficulty with these places. I came off stage and I collapsed. I told my drag colleague what had happened. But the official story I gave at the time, I was mugged in my hometown, but didn't say where. For people hearing this the first time, I am so, so sorry I never told you the truth sooner. Whilst I was working, I suffered seizures every shift. Something was up, and it happened at various gigs too. I left the job amicably, as it was obvious I needed help. Problem is, these seizures happened anywhere and everywhere. I had a crush on one of the guys at home, which went nowhere. I wasn't at an all-time low. I was having fits that could not be described. I was in love that wasn't being reciprocated. And I just had enough. I had enough of what I was doing. There was enough pills and enough alcohol in the house to just end it. So I did. The ambulance came and picked me up. This was the height of the petrol crisis. So I was taken to the local mental lock-up ward. Two weeks later... I was moved to another. I wanted help. But I didn't want to be in the lock-up ward, as I couldn't get to sleep, because at least three people were talking to their voices. It was awful. When I got to my consultation, I acted well enough to be moved to a more relaxed part of the hospital. I knew I needed help. I acted so well, I ended up getting discharged. I got home and learned the truth about the guy I had a crush on. So I took another overdose. Ambulance called and I was back in A&D. I did have three weeks with a CPN. They were as helpful as a condom in the Vatican. Apparently, I wasn't mentally ill to warrant any services. My comeback to that was, so how many times do I need to try and kill myself before I get admitted? Can't remember what the answer was. But whatever it was, I was discharged. There were many missing, i.e. I went missing, trips to London. Also many times I tried to end it too. There were other things happening in the House of Gays as well, and things got too much. I ended back at my parents. Still, I'm a bit safer, aren't I? 2001 So back at my parents as the internet got cheaper, but not necessarily faster, this was still at the time of dial-up, my parents gave me the internet in the bedroom. We have finally moved away from the AOL days, and we have now moved to proper dating sites. These were profile and chat sites. When my parents went to bed, I was on the internet again, looking and chatting to guys. One dating site was USA-based, whilst the other, the UK. I used to disappear to meet guys near me. 
and we did stuff outside. I also stayed up all night, getting more scantily clad mails from my hard drive. Apparently, 10,000 photos, all in different folders for different types of acts, were never enough. I got back into 10ping. This was also the year of me going missing, this time for a whole week. I got picked up by a lad in a cruising area in London, and we went back to his. I don't know his name or age, because he lied about both. Funny thing is, a friend of mine bumped into us in a gay nightclub and called him cute. Whilst my dear friend called him, well, let's say, not cute. My dear friend picked me up on a few occasions where he lived, so I knew what he looked like. I landed a full-time job, but the panic attack still happened. I was there for six months, and they tried their best to keep me on. But as we could never get to the crux of the matter, I left. This was the first of many times either being unemployed and or off-sick for long spells. Panic attacks around this time were almost weekly, if not a daily basis. I was also in and out of the mental health services as well. Again, not being able to pin any of these panic attacks to anything. I suppose if I was truthful about my sexual antics at this point, it would have stopped to what was to become later. I was on many different medications for my depression, Prozac, Veloxetine, Citalopram, to name a few. Sometimes they helped, sometimes they didn't. I just spent my weekends the way I always did, gay adult clubs. Thanks to the mugging, it did finally stop me trolling about the public toilet. So it only took ten years to figure that out. Maybe, just maybe, I wasn't going to find out what I wanted in a public loo. I have touched on taking G in private settings. There is a proportion of gay men that have normalised drugs within a sexual setting. So when you're in the private chat rooms, the conversations would go like this. Age. It's on my profile. Read the damn thing. Likes. You seriously haven't read my profile, have you? Own place. No, but can travel within reason. Chems? Sure, which ones? Weed. E. C. G. Only do weed here. Needless to say, there were many occasions where I was smoking dope with guys. This was the start of the next downfall. I will add, though, the dating apps are proactive when it comes to their apps being misused by some men in this way. However... Human beings can get creative around these restrictions, and as such, it's a cat and mouse game. You only really need to see in 2020 and 2021 how people are being creative with restrictions in regards to the current pandemic. The problem is not the apps themselves, it is unfortunately the species using them. 2002 So 2002 I'm now 26 and really should know better. My sick benefits ran out, and I ended up back on Job Seekers Allowance. August this year, I moved out to my parents and moved to the YMCA. Got a couple of funny stories about the YMCA. There were three gays, including me, and a lesbian that resided at the time I was there. Every dinner time, we would sit around our own table in the corner. The best way to describe that table every night is the banter in the flat that was in It's a Sin was the banter we had around that table. 
much to some of the other residents' disgust. The other, I was cajoled into watching a piece of theatre by one of the team members there. Yes, that was definitely the description. It was basically the teachings of Jesus on the Mount. I'm a Monty Python fan. I was absolutely okay until it got to Blessed Are the Meek. I had to stop myself shouting out loud, thanks to many a time at Rocky Horror. Oh, it's the meek! Blessed are the meek! Oh, that's nice, isn't it? I'm glad they're getting something because they've had a hell of a time. I was there trying not to laugh. I ended up having to go to the loo and compose myself before going back to the theatre. Needless to say, I declined more theatre productions. Every room had a phone. I had a PC. I built myself a PC with a DVD drive, my music on the hard drive and a TV tuner. Nowadays, this is called a home theatre PC. But back to the phone line and PC. I went online and now I could accommodate in the day I was well away. This was also the time that my haunt had a certain night that I used to frequent and still do. My JSA came on a Tuesday and so I was able to go up on a Tuesday. This particular Christmas though, I got a mobile phone, the Nokia 3310. I went to London on Boxing Day night and went trolling in a park. Needless to say, it got stolen. Did this stop me trolling in parks? Did it hell? You see, sometimes it was cheaper to go to a club and then cruise until the first train home. Part needs must, part something else. I only had three months left at the YMCA, as the following year I moved to my own place at last. 2003 So 2003, I now have my own place. The YMCA helped me fill my flat with furniture, and they helped me buy my first washing machine. The washing machine was top of my list, as I got real fed up using the laundrette. The other thing I needed was broadband internet. I heard about this newfangled thing. It was faster than dial-up. 8 megabits per second compared to 56 kilobits per second. So I went for that. So now I have my own place. The guy who I was in a relationship with was going to work and coming back to my flat lunch times. So I had morning, afternoon and evenings to myself. I had my own place. I had the dating sites. And I also had broadband. As we now have faster broadband, we had peer-to-peer downloading. So, woohoo! Full porn videos. I had a lot of them. So that thing was on 24-7. On the dating sites, my handle was pretty much my postcode and my hair type on there. The chat rooms were also based on counties, so it made it easier to cruise. My tagline in the chat room was pretty much, Anyone near Canacom? I got a lot of stick for that. I was very well known in that group. We did all meet from time to time in our local gay bar. I met loads of guys at home and sometimes I travelled to that area. There was one case when I met a guy, we were in a group and someone asked how we met. And we said, the internet. Pretty radical then. But now I know that others met on IRC. So not exactly radical as we originally thought. This was also the time I started dabbling with ecstasy. A guy came over with some 
told me what the stages were so I knew the risks of what was happening. Well, if you're going to take drugs, you have to take them responsibly, aren't you? This was the year I was sent to DWP, Department of Working Pensions, to a work programme. These programmes all run in a similar vein. Get your CV up to scratch, get your IT skills sorted and you should be job ready. Yeah, that's going to keep the figures down, isn't it? But that's an entirely different subject. I was going there Monday to Friday. I was also going to the club on Tuesdays. Remember, I got paid on Tuesdays. One particular night at this club, the promoter wanted some porn to show at the club, as at that time the type of porn wasn't available. Well, not as much now. I'm actually obliged. We did get paid in a Viagra, plenty of drink and a lousy T-shirt. The guy I performed with in the film, we became friends with benefits and he came with pizza and ecstasy tablets on various occasions. This was the start of me looking for guys with drugs on the gay chat rooms. So I was always online until stupid o'clock in the morning looking for sex. Sex with drugs, videos of sex and of course scantily clad men photos. But I loved it. And it wasn't a problem now, was it? 2004. So yeah, in my own place. If I got the right amount of sex, I didn't feel the need to go to London. If I went longer than two weeks, usually bound by my DWP benefits I was on at the time, I went to London. I think my days of going missing subsided as I had a home to go to. But one thing that did start to happen was when I did have the feelings of shame or guilt, I wouldn't answer the phone and or I would lock the door from the inside, much to the annoyance of my dear friend. This was also about the time the long-term relationship came to an end, as it was obvious that things weren't working. Looking back, right now was the start of things to come. I was still frequenting my haunt. The guy I met with the E still came over, and I actually got off with the doorman at the time. We talked a lot, he was cute, and that was all what was needed. So it was at this point, it was the cycle of find guys online, some come back for multiple meets. If that didn't happen, look for porn. If I had money in my account, I went to London. Then I would feel remorse, stay offline for a bit, then rinse and repeat. Then I found something else on the gay scene in London at a couple of clubs. 2005. So I'm now frequenting clubs and I got lucky in a few venues where I knew of a dealer. So I was able to get E at that time. As I was now consciously looking online for guys with drugs too, I also went back with more guys that did drugs. I even had a fling with a guy that took coke. So this was even better. So if there were no drugs from online meets, then I would go to London. This just seemed to be the pattern. One particular night, the dealer offered me MCAT, and this became the drug of choice, either in a venue or online. I can't remember much about 2005 when it comes down to guys, venues, etc., because at least two to three times a month, I was taking drugs. This was the year I started my first IT business as a sole trader. I was going to be a jack of all trades. I got a grant, and things started to look rosy. Part of the business was to sell home theatre PCs, as I thought this was going to be the future, but as time passed, it just became a very niche market. 
things started again to fall apart at the seams. 2006. So the year of my business venture, I had a website I built myself. I advertised and started to get a couple of customers. I was working from home. Things were cool. But I advertised in the wrong places and this was part of a work programme for DWP. I either needed to find customers or find a job. This was also about the time the drag act started to dry up in the gig department. I ended up temping. I was working full time and I was good at my job. I ended up working in a school. Business dried up. Quite simply, I advertised in the wrong places and was taken a ride by two telephone directories. So at last, I had a living wage. And because I was working Monday to Friday, I had a living wage. It wasn't that much, but I had a living wage. Some Fridays I went to London. Sundays I went to my haunt. Although I was still looking for guys at evenings and at weekends at home, I still had regular guys at that point. But I was staying up until 4am in the morning looking. So again, work was affected. This came to a head in 2007. 2007. So I'm trying to juggle work, my sex life and my London trips. I'm finding myself in dangerous situations in London. My depression got worse and other problems started to show, like my panic attacks. I'm drug taking, prescribed and not prescribed. Work got affected and I went back into sickness benefits. This was fine, but because my benefits came on a Thursday, it meant I wasn't able to get to my haunt either on a Sunday or a Tuesday. I had to make do with Friday nights. This was okay, as I was able to go and find drugs elsewhere, either online or in a venue. But this was fortnightly. My gyro was fortnightly. So my trips to London were fortnightly. I had enough. I wanted to break this cycle. So the following year, I decided to pull myself together and do something about it. There's a reason why these are getting a little bit shorter. And the reason for this is quite simple. I know what I was doing, but because there were too many occasions where I was missing, high, depressed, going to London, cruising online, or looking for porn, all I can remember is the activities rather than with whom and where. I used to pride myself with a good memory. As you can see from earlier posts, I can remember times, dates, places, pre-2000s, but that is not the case now. When I heavily got into my addiction, things are just a blur. I remember sex. I remember drug taking with guys. I remember venues. All of these are simply blurred. Too many men in too short a time. This alone should have been the trigger to stop what I was doing. This should have been the time that people noticed. Problem is, I got so adept to hiding my sex life and its shortcomings, no one knew. Like I mentioned way back in 1991 with public toilets, what I was doing was illegal, the drugs, and because it was drilled into me at an early age that this was wrong, dirty, etc. And coupled with the fact, from the age of 15, I was accustomed to the gay life being dangerous meant I simply thought this was the norm. The new technologies never helped either, as I was already damaged from the public lose and from the mugging. My risk-taking just kept on escalating. Anyway, 2008. This was the time of change. 2008. 2008 came. 
I made the decision to try college a third time. I went to my local college, I will get on a course, and I got myself onto a course called Access to Arts and Humanities, which enabled me to go to university. It made me realise that I could sit and learn something and that I could learn independently. For my dissertation, for the end of the year, I went very gay. Unbelievably gay. It was about the Eurovision Song Contest and block voting. Told you it was gay! I can tell you why there is block voting and why certain countries get in. I can also tell you about the Big Four. But that's not the reason why you're listening. I passed. I finally passed a college course and was going to university, as this gave me the structure I needed. Sex became secondary. I still went to London. I was still going to gay adult clubs where I knew the dealer. I was still also online at night when I wasn't writing essays. This September, I was going to university. Going to university. I was going to do a combined BA in television, film and theatre. I had my life finally planned out. I was going to work in television, behind the scenes, and this is what I wanted to do. At university, there was a gay group. I went on the first meeting. After that meeting, we went to the local bar. I fancied a couple of guys, and as they were talking to me, etc., I completely missed the fact they weren't interested in me sexually. I missed the train home, and my dear friend had to save me. Something here is done on a regular basis. Many, many thanks to you for looking after me, even at these low periods. Although, we haven't got to the lowest period yet. More on that later. So that was the first and last time I went to that gay group. Anyway, I was happy with the London scene. Also, we have another year of university to tell. 2009. 2009 was when two major things happened in my life. Firstly, a friend of mine was found dead in Brighton. Secondly, my brother came out as trans. Before this point, they were my sister. I got counselling at university. Student support services were fantastic. They do exactly what they say on the tin. As I was at university, I was trying to keep up with essays. These were done on my PC at home. Slight problem with writing essays on a PC with a broadband connection, especially when you are searching on the web. You are only one click away from dating sites or porn. I missed the essay deadlines. My depression and anxiety started to rear their ugly heads. And my panic attacks started showing up again. Another symptom that started was my legs used to give way for no reason. So at times at university, I was using a stick. I vaguely remember my toes couldn't keep still either. Was I burning the candle at both ends? Was it down to the drug taking? I don't know. There is a part of me that does think that the sexual activities had negative repercussions and these could be attributed to my health and that it's my fault that I am the way I am. Maybe I was predisposed to have these health conditions and those activities just accelerated these symptoms. What is undeniable is that my past indiscretions did affect my health. Whether it was the events, the drugs or both, I simply just don't know. 2010. This was the year that my heat packed up. Time off university. This was the year I looked after a friend who had a heart issue. 
who took advantage of my goodwill. Time off university. I got behind at university. My mental health suffered even more. I went to my GP, who then referred me to mental health services. I had the appointment and the first psychiatrist I saw was bad. So bad, he basically accused me of picking mental health conditions off the shelf. This guy is also so bad that when I went to see my GP, I didn't have to say anything. He said to me straight up, do you want a second opinion? I want it. So, the second psychiatrist diagnosed me with depression, anxiety and OCD. My OCD is mainly to do with hygiene, more other people's than mine. This became an issue on the gay scene and I very quickly found out that MCAT killed my OCD stone dead. It was a simple solution. I looked for guys who were into chemsex and take MCAT. I went to clubs where I could buy it. For me, that was a problem solved. As I was on various different medications for my depression, sleep, etc., something weird started to happen at night before I went to sleep. My legs kept moving on their own. I was able to suppress the movement, but it hurt if I did. My head kept jerking back and forth. Again, suppress, it stopped, but hurt. Then I started to make nonsensical sounds. Then I uttered my first involuntary word. I would love to say it was something nice and fluffy. It wasn't. It was the N-word. What the fuck was going on? I put this down to meds that I was on and thought nothing about it. Like everything else in my private life, I kept it a secret. University gave me a year off, but with these new symptoms and that I never got the help for the OCD due to cutbacks and mix-ups, we came to the conclusion that I should give up the course. Before I did, they made absolutely sure my benefits were correct and I got the income I needed. Although I never finished my BA, I wouldn't have the finances today if it wasn't for them. This is probably going to be one of the few points where I do break anonymity. Thank you so much to the University of Reading for giving me the support when I was there and for the help for filling out those DWP forms. Your student support services were outstanding. In 2011, I'm going to actually find out what those panic attacks were and what these new symptoms are. 2011. My weird symptoms kept on going. My involuntary words at night learned new ones, like wanker and fuck. But this still kept happening at night, and if I had the urge to say one of those words during the day, I was able to suppress them. Friends asked me to stay around their houses, so I had to explain my nightly routine. That was not fun. Also, what was not fun was now that I couldn't hide the head nodding. I had to go back to my GP. Now, I wanted to know what this could be. I know you shouldn't look at your symptoms on the internet, but I was scared and unsure. So, I did a quick search and found that it could be Tourette's syndrome. Here is what the NHS site says on Tourette's syndrome. Ticks are the main symptom of Tourette's. They usually appear in childhood between the ages of 2 and 14. Around 6 years is the average. People with Tourette's have a combination of physical and vocal tics. Examples of physical tics include blinking, 
eye-rolling, grimacing, shoulder-shrugging, jerking of the head or limbs, jumping, twirling, touching objects and other people. Examples of vocal tics include grunting, throat clearing, whistling, coughing, tongue clicking, animal sounds, saying random words and phrases, repeating a sound or a word or phrase, swearing. In regards to the swearing tick, although a part of Tourette's, it is the most uncommon of tics, as only 10-15% to 15% of Tourette sufferers swear. Obviously with my N-bomb last year, I am, unfortunately, one of that 10-15%. to 15%. For me, it can't be Tourette's. It can't be, because the last time I looked I was 35. I know I've been a late starter for some things, but damn... I went to my GP and he sent me back to mental health services with the suspected case of Tourette's syndrome. I did ask him, how can it be? I'm over 14. To which he replied, kids can get Alzheimer's. I left the surgery thinking more about those poor kids than I did of my new suspected condition. In December, I got officially diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. The panic attacks all those years ago were tick fits. The depression, OCD and anxiety were co-occurring conditions of Tourette's syndrome. How much more can I take? I've picked myself up so many times. This was the last straw and I did what came to me naturally. 2012. This was the year my dear friend's mum died. I wrote this on the day of her death. She was like a second mother. She was absolutely fine with all my foibles, including my newly diagnosed Tourette's diagnosis. If my Tourette's ever uttered a really bad word, she would say, I heard worse. I used to be in the Wrens. She died age 92. I helped my dear friend clear her flat out and with other things. I suppose what with the death of my friend, my brother coming out as trans, the abysmal behaviour of the friend I looked after, my dear friend's mother's death, with the added bonuses of depression, OCD, anxiety, sleep problems and Tourette's, I just simply couldn't take any more heartache or stress. This was also the time I had a smartphone. That smartphone had dating apps for gay men. More like the modern version of a cruising ground or public toilet. I had both my PC and smartphone set up, so it was easier to find people who were into drugs. Chem-friendly, chilled-out sessions meant the guy took drugs. C-K-M-T meant coke, ketamine, MCAT and Tina respectively. H&H meant that the guy was high and horny at the time he was on mine. I was chatting to a guy who wanted a threesome, and he mentioned that he was into slamming. I didn't know what he meant, but had a clue. As I've gone so far down the drug route by now, I thought I would give it a go. If you want to know what slamming means, please look at the terms used here on the website. I did, and oh my god, it was the best high ever. They left, and I was still buzzing, so I went to London to get more sex. I forgot to clear up from that evening, and my dear friend saw the needle. I can't remember what I said, but I think he was okay with the explanation, or just didn't want to admit 
that his best friend might just have a problem. 2013. This is where things get blurry. I was getting high more times than I was sober. There were a few events that stand out, but I cannot put a date to. I met this guy on my smartphone. He was everything I wanted in a guy, including drugs, including slamming. This guy showed me how to get hold of legal highs off the internet. Legal highs was a bit of a euphemism, as these things were roughly the same as real Class A drugs. But just by switching a couple of molecules about, you get a different chemical, thereby selling them legally online, and being able to get them delivered to your door. So now I have found a way of getting hold of drugs without the need to use my PC or phone's dating apps. Thanks to my Tourette's being the sociably unacceptable condition that it is, also meant I could stay away from London. The drugs at home originally started on weekends, then every Wednesday night and weekend, then every night. I was taking drugs every night, watching my porn collection, with my phone in hand, seeing if I could get a lad to join in, as I became H&H, high and horny, it meant I had a reasonable excuse not to travel. The guy I chatted to on my phone, we met regularly, and there were occasions that he organised threesomes at my place. My home became a drug stand and a place for high and horny gay men to meet up in. Unless it was on those days that no one was there, I spent a weekend watching porn, high, all weekend, from 7pm Friday evening until 8am Monday morning. 2014. Some events stick out in my mind. I got one lad to come over who was into slamming and he was able to arrange a foursome for us to go to. I took my legal highs with me. We had a great time. There was a sling, porn, needles, drugs, you name it. The orgy lasted for hours. The other guy wanted to meet up after, so dropped me off in Brighton. I was high and was in a couple of saunas, and I also went around the trolling area. It got about to 8pm, and I had no way to get home. My phone was flat, and only had a couple of pounds to make phone calls. I was able to get hold of my dear friend, who was able to get hold of the local police. Thankfully, as I had Tourette's, I could mask the fact that I was still as high as a kite. I do have a feeling the police could see I was high, but never made it an issue. Again, my dear friend came and picked me up. Thank you once again. There was another guy I met on a few occasions where I would go and travel myself. Go to his place, we would slam, get high, look at our phones to see if we could get another guy, and I would either make my way to London for more or on rare occasions going home. Those going home occasions is where I already had my own stash. Regarding slamming, was I careful with needles? No, we shared. Were we taking precautions? No. Was I having sex with HIV positive men? Yes. I was HIV awareness trained. I was a stickler for safer sex. Now... It was just as if I didn't care anymore. 2015. This was around the time I found I could get illegal drugs sent through the post online. You really had to be very persistent and very technical to do this. 
Now remember, I brought my drugs whilst still high as a kite. Some even shot myself I could do this. So in order, this is how one would have to get illegal drugs to your doorstep. Get a VPN. Get tool browser. Find a dark web market for drugs. Think Amazon for drugs, complete with reviews. Open an account, which gave you a Bitcoin wallet. This is where it got really time-consuming and confusing. You need to make real money turn into Bitcoin, and here's what you had to do. Find a Bitcoin broker. This meant you needed another Bitcoin account for the coin to be put in. As Bitcoin uses blockchain, you can trace every Bitcoin transaction made. You need to tumble the coins, so you need another Bitcoin wallet to put the money in. So once it's tumbled, you have to take the money out of another one to actually put it into your actual account. <sighs> Needless to say, slightly sober me left high me with a nice set of instructions, which I found a few years ago. I'm even impressed with myself with that level of organisation. The drugs would arrive in stealth, so that the raw mail didn't get wind of what was sent to you. I had speed, E, coke and crystal meth sent to me. Again, these were always taken at night. This is not to be taken as a guide for buying drugs off the dark web. I'm not condoning this behaviour whatsoever. 2016 took a very dark turn, even if the previous years weren't enough. 2016, January. The guy I was meeting on a regular basis came over for the weekend. We had a threesome and loads of sex and drugs were involved. I started becoming truthful to the lack of going to the sexual health clinic. I got the third degree on what I was doing. I also got a neurologist for my Tourette's. It only took five years. I was honest with him with the chem sex and what I was doing. I tried to come off the drugs, the sex, everything. I hit an all-time low. For me, I had nothing at that point. I got my pills and some alcohol out. But before I did anything, I rang the Samaritans. They kept me talking. My dear friend must have thought something was up and came to my flat at 2pm just before I took the overdose, and he stopped me. We did go to the local A&D, waiting for the crisis response team. They never turned up, so we went home. February 22nd, I went back online to see if I could find a guy with chems. He had MCAT and G. He came over. We had fun. He went under a couple of times. Going under is that when you go unconscious. February 23rd. At 6am he left. I asked if he could leave something for me so I could finish myself off. He left me some G and I did what I usually do. I went under. I went more than go under. I was almost dead. What happened next I only know because my dear friend found me almost dead on my bed. He cleared up as much as he could and switched the TV off so that the paramedics didn't see what I was up to. When he was on the phone he was told to check my breathing. I was so far gone that I had the death rattle. I was dying. I was taken to hospital and was put in an induced coma. I was in that coma for a couple of days. February 25th. I woke up from my coma. I was in a room on my own. Wires coming out of me everywhere. I tried to piece together how I got there. I assumed it was a drug overdose and I got myself there. I remember telling the nurse to tell my dear friend nothing about the drugs. Not realising my dear friend got me there in the first place. 
I was admitted to the drug and alcohol service in my local area and took it up. I went to the meetings for almost a year. I came off the scene, I deleted the apps, I got rid of the tool browser and emptied my phone book on the people who were a bad influence. I went to the sexual health clinic in my own hometown and had every test imaginable. I had a few sexual diseases that could be solved with a bunch of antibiotics. I also had an HIV test. You know you've been down a dangerous road and you have been very lucky when the nurse comes back to you and says, I can't believe this. You are HIV negative. Even with the sharing of needles, knowingly going with positive guys, not having safer sex, I am still negative. To almost quote from Mitzusin, I was very lucky with the guys I had and shared needles with. The only thing I lost physically is my teeth. The drug abuse all those years with speed, coke and MCAT took a toll on them. I know I'm very lucky to be alive. Possibly this is why I'm still alive. To tell the story on how bad things can be if no one stops you or you hide parts of your lifestyle for years. 2017. This was the year of counselling and mental health. I found a Friday night venue that ran monthly meetings called Let's Talk About Gay Sex and Drugs. I found there I could get help for my chemsex activities. As I was coming off drugs, I was starting to replace this with alcohol. This is the problem with addiction. There is a very dangerous part of your recovery where you replace one addictive activity with another. I was getting drunk quickly. This was the sum total of my London trips in 2017, as I didn't feel I could cope with anything else just yet. This was the help I had with everything over in 2017. Counselling for chemsex, counselling for my grief with regards to my Tourette's. Up to that point, I was grieving for the life I thought I'd lost. Neurologist meetings for my Tourette's. Psychiatrist meetings with my mental health. Drug meetings with other addicts. One by one, over the year, they dropped off, as each part of my life was slowly being sorted. My dear friend, who has now become my part-time carer too, took me to all of these appointments, especially at least two of these counselling sessions weren't in my hometown. This was the year that everything got sorted mentally and physically. I even started going to the dentist to sort out my teeth, as they were in a bad shape due to all the drug abuse all those years previous. Part of the chemsex recovery was to go back onto the London scene, which I did. I went back to my haunt, but my OCD took over and I couldn't go back. Maybe it was just a bit too early in my recovery. I started going out again, but thanks to my Tourette's I was turned away by some venues, as they were accusing me of taking drugs. I was sober for nearly a year. Stupid thing was, some of these clubs I went high as a kite and got in. Sometimes there's just no justice in the world. This is when I found that the gay scene, whether it was a venue, an app, or with outreach groups, we are now starting to take drugs and chemsex seriously. But you see, here is the problem. Drugs and chemsex are now going underground. This alone is a frightening concept. We are losing guys we now can't reach out to. 2018. I had one bad experience on the gay scene in London this year. And I stopped going. I wanted to do something with my life, so in August this year, I started another business venture. 
Yeah, I know. I was starting a business in the middle of Brexit. My first business mistake. I was apparently far too optimistic in those negotiations. I got myself into a pattern. I was working four days a week. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. Tuesdays, my dear friend and I used these Tuesdays to go out and do things. I was also helping out with a charity and running my own Tourette's group too. I know this is the first time I mentioned it here, but we have been running that group for nearly six years at this point. It is also worth mentioning at this point I was a functioning addict. I was still doing stuff, but it was more autopilot and any weird behaviour was just simply put down to my conditions. I was also going round a friend's house once a weekend too. I also started to set myself projects. During the height of my drug addiction, I was spending £150 a week on drugs. So I funnelled this into either the business or into my media server setup, my retro gaming or my smart home. The business I'm in. I web host and web design for a living. I would normally advertise myself at this point, but for the time being, I'm keeping those separate. Not that I'm ashamed. It's at this moment in time, the message is more important than the person behind it. September this year was the first of what should have been many, Covid stopped that, hospital pantos. So I was performing again. My drag colleague and I got involved with this. On the night of the show, the pair of us realised we were too old and too disabled, I was the disabled one, to do this full time again. My porn collection is now at a stable 150 videos. A far cry from my 10,000 plus photos. I tried going back on the apps, but now I can only deal with about 10 minutes of them. They stay on my phone for about a month and then get deleted. My sexual addiction is almost coming to an end. 2019. This is the year of the comeback queen. This was the year I finally got back onto the gay scene. I got back to going back to my regular haunt. There had been a couple of times where I drank too much, but the guys there have been great. They tell me I should go home if I've drunk too much, or if I've been sensible enough, sober me tells them to stop serving me alcohol when I've drunk too much. Drunk me hates that. My drinking there has gone up and down in waves. This, again, is down to the fact I was still in the recovery part of my addiction. I also went to a venue that was non-sexual on a Friday or Saturday, so to break the pattern of just using London for sex. This was also when I found a chemsex group, which met on a Friday. Brilliant. I have a bit of support whilst helping others, and I can go to a non-sexual venue afterwards. New Year's Eve came, so I celebrated it in my haunt, as this year was the hardest. On the train home, I posted this on Facebook. I've had a good year with business and personal things. I'm drunk but happy in the fact that I've ended the year and started the year as a clean man. London for me was a big thing to overcome, but after 10 months and one hiccup, I've done it. Tonight was to prove myself I could do it and I have. I'm crying right now because I know I'm free from the shackles of addiction. Thank you everyone, including you know who for being there. 2020 is definitely going to be the year that nothing is going to stop me. I think we can all see the irony in that last sentence there, can't we? 2020. As this was the first year of COVID-19, I'm going to use this year as a year of reflection. My gay lifestyle has been a roller coaster, to say the least. So has my mental and physical health, not to mention my addictions. 
This could very easily have been the year where I could simply have downloaded Tor and started again. I could also have illegally met up with guys online for sex and drugs. I haven't. I have been busy with Zoom meetings for my local Tourette's group. I've also been busy with projects or brushing up my web development skills. I'm worried about going back on the London gay scene when all this is over, but I'm assuming I'm not going to be the only one that's going to have trouble readjusting when that happens. What I really want in life now is a hubby and a couple of kids. But, unfortunately, I'm having the same issues as I did in 1991, thanks to Covid. My thought process now goes something like this. I want a hubby. Surely someone else wants a hubby. How the hell do we meet? 2021. As you can see, that after watching It's a Sin, I have been proactive over the last few months. I have set up a web server, designed and created a podcast insight. I have written, produced, recorded and edited five podcasting episodes and have distributed them. This part of the episode was written and recorded on the day after my coma I had five years ago. I am also proud to tell you that I am now five years clean from my sexual and drug addictions. Thank you so much for listening to my story over the last ten weeks. I've been told to be promotional at this point, so here it is. Please follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram using at a 90s teen. You can also comment on the episode by clicking on the episode webpage link on your phone or by visiting the podcast page of my website. I'm currently posting Instagram photos and video galleries that complement this series. However, they do explicitly show the downward spiral of an addict, so please view with caution. There is a poll on my main website, which I will repost on Twitter and Facebook, so I know which direction I should go after the 30th of April. All votes will be greatly appreciated. Now, back to the credits. This podcast was written, produced and edited by a 90s teenager. All music on this podcast is available at Purple Planet. If you have been affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, please visit the link in the description notes of this episode. Thank you for listening.